The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. The Oscar shortlist is right around the corner, and recently we've had the good fortune to speak with the directors of several of Netflix's new documentaries that are in the hunt for an Academy Award. These include Margaret Brown, director of Descendant, who talked to us about her beautifully layered and timely portrait of the descendants of the slave ship Clotilda. We also spoke with Tamana Ayazi and Marcel Metalzifin, directors of In Her Hands, which follows the courageous young mayor of an Afghan town who fights for women's rights against the backdrop of the country's takeover by the Taliban. And we had a chance to speak with Elvis Mitchell, director of Is That Black Enough For You, his celebration of black cinema in the late 1960s and the 70s. Finally, Chris Smith joined us to discuss his new documentary, Senior, featuring Robert Downey Jr. in tribute to his late father, the pioneering filmmaker Robert Downey Sr., Be sure to listen to these conversations at our feed and watch these films now all available on Netflix. Today, I spoke with Ileana Sosa about her new documentary, What We Leave Behind. Here's what Ileana had to say about her film. What We Leave Behind is a personal documentary about my 89-year-old grandfather who constructs a small house in his rural Mexican village in Durango for our family to have a place to come home to. What We Leave Behind debuted at South by Southwest, where it won the Fender New Voices Award and the Lewis Black Lone Star Award. It went on to receive a nomination for Best Documentary at the Gotham Awards. Ileana has previously directed Detained in the Desert, as well as several shorts, and has served as a producer on many documentaries as well. As Ileana mentions, this film focuses to a great extent on her grandfather, Julian, but despite never appearing on camera, Ileana is clearly a subject of the film as well, or maybe it's better to say that her love for her grandfather is ever-present and makes its presence known in every frame. Julian is a welcoming presence, always offering food, drink, conversation. And Ileana makes us feel welcome, too, into his home, his daily life, his deep history. I loved how the film employed both simple, clear storytelling, man builds a house for his loved ones, as well as mixing in personal reveries, which pull us into the director's and her family's past, and even brings in mythical elements, which draws us even further back into something that seems to lie outside time itself. The film is also beautifully shot and edited to juxtapose images in ways that sometimes rhyme and sometimes clash and often do a little bit of both. You can watch What We Leave Behind on Netflix. As always, if you enjoyed this conversation, please do subscribe to the pod and you can follow us both on Instagram and Twitter at TopDocsPod, all one word, TopDocsPod. Now my conversation with Ileana Sosa about her film, What We Leave Behind. Ileana, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you so much, Michael. It's so nice to be here. And congratulations on the film. It's a beautiful film. It's very affecting and moving. And it does, over time, make you think about a few issues, too. We'll talk about those. Sounds great. And we like to talk about beginnings. And I think you do a great job here in this few minutes before the title card of setting up obviously the main characters of the film, some of the themes, but also I think very importantly, the cadence of the film. And this film has a lot of scenes of your grandfather and his daily life, but it also has these kind of more, 
I call them almost, almost reveries, these scenes where we see kind of a pictorial shot and your narration comes in and tells us something. So let me set that up. The opening is your grandfather is on the couch in the US and he's eating and he does a lot of eating in the film. And you capture a little bit of the humor, I think, of the film here. This loving humor, I should say. He's on his way back to Mexico and you clearly would like him to stay longer. But he says, in America, now I sit and I watch TV. And, and then you show your mother, his daughter, dressing him for the bus ride back to Mexico. You join him on the bus. And then you go into this little reverie. Uh, it's kind of meditation, memories and meditation. And you talk about how you found him when you were younger, a mystery. He was always wearing his sombrero. And then you tell a particular story about driving him. And he was in the back and he's banging on your back seat. And you're not quite sure why. And then he wants to be up front so you won't get lost. This is his land. So much resonance here. As I said, really captures some of the structure of the film. Can you talk about why you wanted to start here? Yeah, it was something that we played around a lot with. Isidore Bethel, who I give so much credit to, he's an amazing editor. I had a very different version of this film a few years ago. And when I met Isidore, we really reconstructed the film. And we knew we wanted to focus on the construction. We knew we wanted to focus on this last bus trip. But we also wanted to set up the tone right of the film. And through these like reveries that you called, but through these voiceover vignette that came later in the film, we found the structure. But I also wanted to capture that dreamy, poetic sense that I feel every time I go to Urango. And the bus trip was a way to do that and a mechanism to do that. So we do discover pretty early on what draws him back to Mexico, at least on the surface, something better than just watching TV. He's building a house. I think it's quite close to his current home. He's supervising construction. He's even helping out a little bit. What's not completely clear is why, right? Who is it for? His children seem to have houses or they live in the US. And this reminded me a little bit of the mystery you talked about earlier. Even here, there's a little bit of mystery, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's a little bit of mystery and there always was in the process of him building this house. And he would talk, talk about it and say, oh, it's for whoever wants to come back, whoever needs a place to stay. But he wasn't ever quite completely clear of his intentions and the family quite didn't understand why at his age of 89 that he would start building something like this. But in many ways, that was my grandfather. That really, that was his essence and that very much was his personality. He was a doer. He was always active. He was always doing something. And although he might not have been completely clear of why of his intentions behind building the house. I very much think it was a place that he wanted to leave behind for our family in the U.S. to not worry about having a place to come home to. And there's more, I think, symbolic significance behind it, not just a house, but also my grandfather was the type of person who was always welcoming, no matter who you were, if you were just a stranger and you needed food and a place to stay, he would offer that. So I think that spirit carried on in the construction of this house. Yeah, that's great. And I'm sure we'll touch about on it a bit more because, again, this image of the house and the construction of the house carries throughout. You know, I think this film is not a political film on its surface, but there are some themes that I think really jumped out at me almost right from the beginning. And one is the porousness, the traditional porousness of the border between the U.S. and Mexico. I think some people have a very, this notion that it's always been a really strict border, but of course it's been open. You know, and your grandfather very early on starts talking about how his kids left for the U.S. and continue to move between these two worlds. Can you talk about that as a theme in your film? Yeah, absolutely. I love that you pointed that out. And I love that you use the word porous because I think of the border 
as poor as growing up in El Paso. The sister cities, Juarez and El Paso are just very interconnected. And my family in many ways represents that porousness. My grandfather left at an early age to come work as a bracero in the U.S. My mother left at 14 and then my aunts and uncle followed. And we have always lived our lives in between two countries and between two cultures. For me, it was important to just show that and to show also that we are a typical modern American family. Immigration sure is a theme, but I feel there's so many families like mine that live in the same way. There's an interesting scene later where your grandfather has this little blue bag and he's got a lot in it. And we see him digging through and it's a little bit of a comic moment, but we're like, what's he looking for? And he pulls out this card of him from 1964. And it is his Bracero card, or it's his picture with his brother-in-law's name on it. Can you talk about what the Bracero program was? So the Bracero program, it was the largest actually legal guest worker program in the U.S. Back in during World War II, the U.S. government had a shortage of labor because of the war. And so they contracted many Mexican men to work the fields all over the U.S. And my grandfather was one of these men and many of these men uh, sometimes use other IDs to identify themselves in order to work. There were these long lists that you would sign up in your town and you sometimes would wait for months to be able to get on that list, to be able to go to work. But it was a legal program and one that the U.S. very much benefited. But sadly, these workers were very much underpaid and also exploited in many ways. So a lot of these men have passed away and so have their stories. And it's one of these moments, too, in the film where the nature that you're filming it comes into play because you try to get in close and you're saying it won't focus. It won't focus. And I felt like there was more going on there than just a failure of focus. Yeah, I think there's so many moving pieces when making a documentary film. But for me, a lot of it was I didn't quite get answers to questions I'd been asking and even this history of my grandfather is that I said, all we have is that card. There's no photographs of him. There's definitely not archival. And I'm working on a project now where we talk about the Bracero program and it's been difficult to find archival. There's a lot of photographs, but not video, not much video. And it's just really, in many ways, bearing witness to our own stories being not told enough and also in the risk of being raced. So that's what I love that you mentioned that focus because... Yeah, where is that focus? And sometimes it's not clear and sometimes the focus isn't where it should be. And I think your notion of this sort of missing information is very powerful. So you have an extended scene with your uncle, your grandfather, Julian, his son, Jorge. He's talking about your grandmother, Jorge's mother. And it's like a single five plus minute shot, or it seems like, I should say, it seems like a single five plus minute shot. And I think traditionally we might expect vivid stories and emotionally compelling memories, but that's not what we get here. His memories are sparse. He's not even sure what she died of, exactly how old he was. He can't remember even her face. And again, in the extended scene, we'd expect nostalgia maybe, but here it's almost what's missing that's key. Yeah, exactly. And I think, again, I had many conversations with Jorge and with my grandfather and other family members where... In many ways, I was seeking certain answers and didn't quite get them. When I interviewed Jorge, I wanted to, I wanted to hear like more about my grandmother and hear how she passed and what she was like. But the reality is that that wasn't the case. And I think that's okay too, like not to get the answers that you're seeking. And it also points to generational differences, cultural differences, 
but also, you know, the men in my family, there's a sense that even though there's trauma and pain there, it's not expressed in the form that, for example, I would expect or even want to hear. So my own romanticism of wanting to hear trauma and pain expressed, it wasn't expressed in that way. And that's totally okay. And I also think it shows the fact of how my family has really just had to survive and live the everyday and not focus on the past. And I think his answers points to that, that he doesn't remember what his mother looks like and he's just trying to live the day. And that's very much the essence of how people live in Durango. And one thing that does continue, well, there are a number of things, but one that comes up here in this discussion, he does remember one thing that she would crochet. And we see like a rhyme of this later on, where we see a young woman, Rosie, she's crocheting. And it's, I think, an image of timelessness. It's almost mythical. We think about crocheting and knitting, weaving as this kind of timeless thing. Rosie is my cousin. And she was one of the primary caretakers of my grandfather and is still one of the primary caretakers of Jorge. Her and I are about the same age and she does crochet and I, I don't know how to crochet, but I thought it was interesting that she does that and it clears her mind. And it's also something that's very tactile and hands-on. And again, I think shows cultural differences. I grew up in the U.S. Like her life and mine couldn't be more different. And that's okay too. Like, I think that's quite all right. And I never knew, I never learned how to crochet, but what I found it interesting and a lot of stuff still in Durango is handmade in that way. And that cultural richness is something that's quite beautiful and one that I think is also in many ways could get lost. But that crocheting, I think is in other ways, like shown in other parts of the film, like with my grandfather making this house, building it little by little and like Rossi putting together these. She uses them as to put on furniture on tables, like, and they're, they're shipped to the U.S. So there's usually she sends them over to my mom or to my aunts in the U.S. So then there's that, you know, that process too. Oh, I think interesting. that's super interesting. Yeah. It throughout, as we talked about, a lot of this takes place indoors, especially in your grandfather's house, maybe the small courtyard outside. But sound design here, I thought was really interesting because I think it was constantly kind of calling us out a little bit. So we always hear like roosters, chickens, dogs, insects, sometimes a little bit of music. And I really felt like it was pulling us out. It was calling our attention outside the frame. You know, I work with an amazing sound designer, Lena Esquenazi, who's based in Mexico City, works with a lot of Latin American filmmakers, including Tatiana Hueso. And she's just amazing. And we had early on conversations about how we wanted to approach the sound in this film. Already when we were down there, the sound was so rich. And I attribute that to my amazing sound recordist, Glenda Charles. And Glenda really captured the everyday essence of Durango. And Lena just amplified that. There's not much score in this film. There's only one piece of music at the end, but the music is that, is the roosters, it's the insects, it's the neighbor playing the loud music. All of that adds to the visual soundtrack of the film. And it was a very specific decision to do that and to really make you feel like you were there. And I've had many people after screenings tell me, oh, I, I felt like I was there or I'm from Mexico and I miss my homeland and it felt like I was there. So again, I attribute that to Lena and Glenda who really did an amazing job with the sound. Yeah, it's very immersive. Another one of what I was calling your reveries, you're calling vignettes, and this pulls us outside a little bit, is the extended shot of a rooster on a roof at dusk, I think. 
And you tell a story about your mother and her dream of a bridge, an unstable bridge that sways in the wind. She would then cross what was called the Black Bridge many times, going back and forth between Mexico and the U.S., but the fear never left her, you say. You go on to talk a bit about how, as a baby, you were sick, and your mother suggests you would never make it there, there being Mexico, I believe. Can you talk about this sort of, what's this about for you? My mom left at the age of 14, crossed this Black Bridge, and she talked about how it was a dream. But in reality, there's actually a Black Bridge between Juarez and El Paso that she eventually did cross. Growing up, my sister and I grew up in the U.S. with very different amenities than my mom. And so that line where she says, you'd never make it in Mexico, in Durango, because of how my sister and I were raised. And it's, it's funny, like growing up, we would go to Durango, but it's a very different place as you see in the film. And my mom would be like, well, are you sure you want to go? Because it's really cold and there's no heat <laughs> or if it was the height of the summer, it's really hot and there's no AC and you're going to have to struggle a bit. And in many ways, I just... I don't know, I loved that it was so different from how I grew up. And that's what that line points to. And, and when I did get sick as a baby, then later when I even started embarking on this film, there was never doubt from her, but it was like, almost like, oh, are you sure that you want to do this because of that? And I think that there's a little sub theme about fear. Shortly hereafter, we see your uncle Jorge, I think he's starting a fire. And as I understand, his eyesight is compromised and you're concerned, you're asking him, are you afraid? He answers patiently, but pretty firmly, no, no. And you talk a little bit about your grandfather. Does he have fear of death? And so th there's this little theme about fear that just I thought was interesting. I think for me, like my uncle Jorge, yeah, his vision is compromised. He is visually impaired now and can't see. And that always surprised me that he's just living his everyday life and knows that house better than anyone else. He doesn't seem like he is, but he is. And same with my grandfather's, he's getting older, building this house and just very active lifestyle for me was always so inspiring and impressive. Both Jorge and him really impressed me. When this fear, I think, is multi-layered, it's not only the fear of, in my mind, what was it like for my grandfather to leave his homeland and leave seven children behind that he raised on his own, my mother leaving at 14 and the fear of that, of leaving again her home of aunts and my uncle that don't know if they're ever going to go back in the fear of that. I have an aunt who is undocumented, wasn't able to see my grandfather when he passed away. I had to FaceTime her in, right, into his hospital bed. And there's a fear that she always had that fear of not being able to see him when he passed. And that fear came true. So there's this fear, I think, in immigrant families of not being able to see each other again or of not being able to see their homeland again. You know, of my fear is the fear of like, is all of this culture and this history going to be erased? Or if we don't document it, what's gonna to happen to these stories? So there's fear on, on very different levels. One of the things that really intrigues me is some of your hard cuts from this reverie we go almost directly into a, a shot that's sort of the opposite, sort of the similar. So the shot of the roosters at dusk, and we go into a very brightly lit shot of Pinto, the dog, against the bluish green wall during the daytime. I think it, like I says, matches and pushes against the previous shot. But for me, what's really interesting is that we can see your shadow. And this is one of the few times where you really get a sense of your physicality in the film. Yeah, again, the hard cuts and the amazing editing is all Isidore. <laughs> like he, of course, we collaborated together and decided on how to transition certain things, but he's just has such an amazing eye and amazing sense of pace and surprise. I love 
some of those cuts because they surprise you. And, you know, that shadow of mine comes as a surprise because we don't see me. You hear me, but you never see me throughout the film. And one of the notes that we did get early on when we did a rough cut screening was like, we want to see more of you, but I never filmed myself. That was probably the only moment where I did film myself and that was of my shadow. But in many ways, to me, that shadow represents the making of this film, but also how I'm almost just a fly on the wall. This, Of course, this is my family, but this is like a sliver of also who I am. This is a part of who I am. And in many ways, that shadow represents that. There's a lot of things that are still left unsaid and unanswered, right? And for me, that shadow represents that too, just trying to seek all of this stuff out. Yeah, I think there's a real tension here between you not being on film, but it's so clearly being about you. And because your voice comes in, we see the shadow here. Later on, near the end, your mom is clearing out the backyard. And at this point, both Jorge and your grandfather are really not able to help her. And they comment jokingly on your lack of involvement and discuss whether or not what you're doing truly is work. And again, we see a lot of hard work in this film. Can you talk about including that scene? I really love that scene. I love that they make fun of me. And I love that my grandfather jokes with her and makes fun of me and says, oh, what, you know, Liana's not doing anything. You're doing all the hard work. And, you know, I'm holding a camera, but in his mind, not the equivalent of hard work and labor. The reason why we chose to include that scene is because it shows a generational differences, right? Between me, between my mom, my grandfather, but also I'm the first in my family to be an artist and to make a film and to hold a camera and to point it at my family. So I think there's a lot going on there, but my grandfather made, you know, a living his whole life by the sheer labor of his hands. And that's something that I deeply admire. And my sister and I have been able to choose a different path because of that sacrifice of my mother and my grandfather and my family. We've been able to carve our own path, but it's largely due in part because of them. I'd like to talk about another nice kind of juxtaposition. It's another kind of vignette reverie where you have a shot of your grandfather in front of the ruins of a building after you told the story of your grandmother's death. I like the way you do it because I thought it was a church at first. And it's a pose shot. There aren't that many in your film. And he tells a story about the house with a hundred doors and says a Spanish woman told the man that she would love him if he built her house with a hundred doors. He did. And she loved him. And I, I like this because it's an anti-story. It's like, there's no, it's just, it's a nice story. And then we cut very sharply to a really great rhyming shot. And this time Pinto again is there. He's in front of a house, that, the house your grandfather's building. And of course the juxtaposition between these houses, I think there's a suggestion here that this house is being built for love. Yeah, I think you're, you're spot on. And I love that cut. I mean, Isidore, again, like just, it was such an amazing choice to do that. And I love that story. I was always fascinated by that house of a hundred doors. And then to see my grandfather at his help and also just delegate this construction of this house, it was a form of love. And I think in many ways, the family felt that we didn't quite understand why he was doing it, but we all knew that it was his form of love and just very much part of his essence and who he was as a person. There's definitely humor in this film. It's loving humor, but I think it does become complicated over time. One of the comic motifs of the film is the flies. There's a lot of flies. You're, you hear your grandfather complaining about them. You see him swat him with towels and different fly swatters, including one that's shaped like a hand. And near the end though, you show 
a, a fly in your grandfather's hands and that fly seems like it's almost struggling for life. I just think that it's interesting how you take this kind of humorous motif and it becomes much more serious towards the end. Yes, it was a motif that we found in the edit and he was always hitting the flies. And I love that. I love that motif. But yes, eventually um, when he got sick and we were still filming, I, I was filming here and there because at that point I didn't have a crew with me. Yeah, he didn't at that point care anymore. And I think that was just also a representation of how his health was declining, but also how his personality was shifting and how he didn't have the energy anymore. And for me, that was really heartbreaking to see that unfold in that way. To my mind, a similar sort of change in tone comes with Jorge. We hear about drinking early on. It's played a little bit for fun. But then he does come home seemingly quite inebriated. Your grandfather's on the phone. He stays on the phone. So there's this tension between it being a little bit comic, but it's also not completely comic. I think we're concerned for Jorge at that moment. Yeah, absolutely. At that moment, actually caught us by surprise. We were filming my grandfather talking on the phone and friends were outside with Jorge and he had been drinking and he came in and I think his blood pressure had dropped, but he was inebriated and we just, it caught us completely by surprise that moment. We just held the camera and after a while, just we decided to cut it because we didn't know what was going on with him and we're really concerned. But yes, it's also something that we chose to include because that relationship between Jorge and my grandfather is one that's complicated too. In many ways, my grandfather was his sole caretaker and worried about him constantly. And also because Jorge is blind in many ways, it's just difficult. One of the things that he could do, it's like, how does he entertain himself, right? He's like watching TV or maybe if a friend comes over, he'll have a beer with them. But the life there is very limited for someone like him. And unfortunately, the family didn't and doesn't have the resources to really support him in the way that he needs to be supported. And I think that's something that carries a heavy weight on the family and something that constantly worries my mother. Your grandfather had been speaking about his mortality from early on, although it was hard to believe early on because we see him shoveling and he shovels like someone who knows how to shovel, by the way, He's very efficient at carrying boards. But as we move forward, he does seem to deteriorate a bit. And one of the things that really, I think is subtle, but really is powerful here is he's someone who clearly loves food, he loves to eat, he loves to share food, offer food. And later on, we see him. I think your mother offers him some nuts and he just stares at those nuts. He just doesn't eat them. And later he's concerned about eating or drinking something and then suddenly throwing up. So this thing that was once was this great source of pleasure becomes this kind of unpredictable pain can be caused by food. Yes. And I think, again, that was something that was really difficult to see. And especially, I'm sure there's so many people that are listening that can relate to that have taken care of elders how that becomes a thing. And for my grandfather, he was always constantly worried that if he ate something, it would come back up. And it was just something he was dealing with because of his illness. And it was heartbreaking to see that, heartbreaking that he couldn't eat and wanted to, or it was just very small amounts of food. And that's when he lost his voice too. He wasn't able to speak. And for a man who was constantly talking to people and telling stories and just a very vibrant person that all declined with his health. And that was really, yeah, really heartbreaking for the family. One of the last kind of reveries I think we see or hear is you show a shot of this rock and you explain it's called El Castillo. 
the castle. And you tell us that it's thought to be the home of witches. It, it comes very close to the end. I, I think it could almost go anywhere, but it's interesting. You frame it in the end. You talk about how your grandfather wanted to go see his farmland, even late in life. And you said you learned to trust your grandfather, even when he told you things you didn't understand. I thought that would remind us of that mysterious figure at the beginning. Your grandfather doesn't seem completely mysterious as we watch him, but he still has this element of mystery to you. Yeah, absolutely. And there were stories and there were still moments even, you know, in the making of the film that I didn't quite, again, we were talking about earlier, didn't quite have answers to. And I think that sort of vibrancy and in many ways, these stories are the fabric of our family, but something that I still don't understand. And I, again, I think that's okay. Like growing up, there was always that story of my mother, even, even she would tell me about these witches and so all this folklore and this sort of magical realism is part of that town, but also part of, um, in many ways, Mexican culture. And I think that's just striking and beautiful, right? And I think that's the mystery. It's like, there's no easy answer. You are pretty unsparing in your presentation of your grandfather's final days. We see a shot towards the end of him. He's kind of outside. We hear your family discussing him from within. They mention that he wants the house full of people. And then we have another one of these hard cuts, a hard cut right to your family gathered around him on the bed inside, everyone praying clearly in his last moments. And I think really the slow rhythms of the film were suddenly disrupted. And it really felt to me like something that many of us experience with elder parents and grandparents, which is death comes slowly and then it comes suddenly. And I really felt like you were capturing that in a powerful way. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. Yeah. Again, I attribute that to Isidore and just that jarring cut, but also that's how it felt in our family. I mean, my grandfather, it took about a year to build this house, but then once it was almost done and his health quickly, very rapidly declined and in many ways took us by surprise. He had been okay and, um, and then suddenly not. And so that was a complete shock, but also just a complete rupture in our family because he in many ways, was just the glue that held this family together. So when it when that happened and it happened rapidly, it really was a shock. Yeah, you ask him this a couple of different ways. You ask him why he came back so many times over the years. He says, because I didn't want you folks fighting over small things, this and that. And then later he says about the house, he thinks it's going to be a way to bring people together. There really is a sense of that he really wants to be that glue. Yeah, and he was in so many ways. And and I think that's why he would come every month and he would come see the family when he could and he wouldn't stay long because he was always worried about Jorge. But I think as a single father, after my grandmother died, he raised the seven children on his own and just wanted them to be okay. And I think that was always the constant worry for him. And even in this last final act to build this house, I think for me represents like just wanting his children and his family to be okay. You end quietly. There's no one in this, the scene. I think we hear a little bit maybe of distress from you as you're making your way through what I assume is the new house. There's an unfinished kitchen, like things haven't been installed. And then in the bedroom, there's a big flat screen TV that has not been installed. And then we hear kind of a callback to a song your grandfather sung. Can you talk about ending here on, on the house? I always knew that I wanted to end on the house in this way. And my amazing cinematographer, Judy Fu, actually was her suggestion. We were filming on the ground. She's like, oh, do you want me to just walk through the house? This was when he was still alive. And I said, oh, that's a great idea. So we did that. 
And we knew that was going to be the final scene, but something that we played around in the editing room was adding that final, that song that he sang in the film. And at first, Isidore and I didn't agree on that. And Isidore thought, well, I don't know if that's going to work. That seems a little far-fetched. And we tried it and it did work. And I think it's quite beautiful and haunting and just that empty house and that flat screen TV that hasn't been installed. It's just, that was what was left. And that's how we decided on the ending. It really works. It does work. You know, you feel your sadness, but you also feel his hope. You know, it's all there. Ileana, this is a beautiful film. It's clearly about a particular person, your grandfather, Julian, but it's also about life and death and memory and what we do all leave behind as we move through life. So thank you for this film. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. you have a documentary hidden gem that you feel doesn't get the attention that it deserves? Actually, I just have to say, which I don't think it, maybe people don't know about too much, is Alan King's A Married Couple. I feel like more people need to see it. It's like a true just lesson in verity filmmaking. Mm-hmm.